The Masters Tournament of Golf is an event steeped in solemn pomp, dignified ceremony, and rich history. With a coveted green jacket on the line, the event has been a showcase of some of the world's finest golfers since 1934. Names like Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, and so many more have crossed the threshold from champion to legend on the lush rolling veils of the Augusta National Golf Club in Augusta, Georgia. In your life have you seen anything like that? The club typically only serves as the backdrop for the drama playing out on its 18 holes. For the club to be the story itself, the source of the drama? Well, if you're a signature event sponsor, that kind of situation is less than ideal. We were being positioned as an organization supporting what at this time was discrimination of women. Ben Deutsch is the former vice president of communications at the Coca-Cola company. And in 2002, he was the brand's global media relations manager when Coke's partnership with the Masters was thrust under intense scrutiny over Augusta National Golf Club's discriminatory membership practices. I said, by the way, there's this little golf club and they don't allow women and why don't we write them a letter? Dr. Martha Burke was the chair of the National Council of Women's Organizations. Her plaintive letter of protest would not have made waves in the world of golf, except the chair of the Augusta National Golf Club chose to respond to it publicly in a scathing open letter that catapulted the issue to the cable news A-block and turned Martha Burke into a household name. And the event sponsors like Coca-Cola found themselves stuck between a worthy cause and the inertia of tradition with no easy answers in sight. I'm Dusty Weiss from PodCamp Media, and this is Lead Balloon, a podcast about PR, marketing, and branding nightmares, and the well-meaning communications professionals who live them. Thanks for tuning in. If you like the show, why don't you leave me a review or give me five stars in your favorite podcast app. That'll help me make it into more sets of earbuds. Of course, make sure that you're subscribed in your favorite app as well, and follow PodCamp Media on your social feed of choice. With the Masters taking place every year in April, we find ourselves with a timely topic this month, but this is also a continuation of the conversation we started last month with former Coca-Cola VP of Communications, Ben Deutsch. You can listen to the episodes in any order, but to pick up where we left off, Ben had started with Coke in 1993 in a sports PR role before he was pulled into global media relations right around the turn of the century. Through pure bad luck on his part, that transition happened right in the midst of a real bumpy patch for the brand. On top of the usual new job learning curve, there was a health scare in Belgium and a whistleblower scandal to navigate and learn from. And in the summer of 2002, the last thing on Coke's radar was the men-only membership policy of the Augusta National Golf Club, the permanent host for the Masters Tournament. You know, keep in mind, during that time, the Masters only had three sponsors. It was Citigroup, Coke, and IBM. And the pressure was first brought against the membership. And then smartly, Martha Burke then brought in the sponsors and exerted some pressure on us. And there were a number of threats for boycotts of our products and women's organizations were starting to rally around it. And, you know, as you can imagine, a consumer brand like Coke how important it is for us to obviously have a spotless reputation as it relates to any kind of issue, but certainly one in which, you know, at the time, women, 
they were one of the top consumers of our products in terms of the purchase of the product, purchasing it for the family, etc. So it was so important for us, obviously, such an important concern for us that we were being positioned as an organization supporting what at this time was discrimination of women. What makes this story such a nightmare from a public relations perspective is that Ben Deutsch and the entire Coca-Cola brand, they were just caught in the middle of a fight they didn't pick. In one corner, you had the unstoppable force, Dr. Martha Burke, the chair of the National Council of Women's Organizations. These days, she's just about 80 years old, but far from retired. And she even carved out a little bit of time to chat with me about it. Nearly 20 years later, she still cannot believe that the story played out like it did. I was on a plane one day, and I saw an article by a female sports writer, Christine Brennan, that's her name. She's a writer for USA Today, about this golf club that did not allow women. And knowing it was very prominent, she was writing about that and how difficult it was not only with them in terms of women members, but women members of the press and so forth. So I thought, you know, this is something that we should probably take note of. And about a month later at our board meeting, I mentioned it to the board and I said, by the way, there's this little golf club and they don't allow women. And why don't we write them a letter and urge them to open their membership to women? And it was just a very almost throwaway agenda item. I don't think we even voted on it. I think, as I recall, we were picking up our papers ready to leave when it came up, and they just said, oh, fine, write them a letter. Uh, so I did. <laughs> and the chair of the club is a guy named Hootie Johnson. I'm Hootie Johnson, chairman of Augusta National Golf Club, and we sure hope you enjoyed the Masters Tournament. That is former state representative, banking magnate, Hootie Johnson. And don't be fooled by that folksy pastoral air. Hootie Johnson would be assuming the role of immovable object in this drama. As chair of Augusta National Golf Club, he responded publicly to Dr. Burke's firmly worded letter with a statement of his own. And in the second graph of its July 8, 2002 story about the exchange, the Associated Press described Johnson's response as, quote, a surprisingly long and angry statement. He just went ballistic in the press and sent them a three-page letter slash press release saying he would not be held at the point of a bayonet and all this sort of thing. The point of a bayonet? Absolutely. Now, the terrible irony here is that According to Dr. Burke, if Augusta National had just responded privately to her letter, or even ignored it entirely, there probably wouldn't have been any coverage of it. Instead, it became a national sensation almost overnight. The first call I got was from Doug Ferguson, who's an Associated Press golf writer. And uh, he said, what do you think about Hootie Johnson's letter? I said, what letter? I haven't seen it. And he read it to me over the phone. The guy had sent it to every golf press in the country, if not the world. And it just blew up into a national controversy, which played out over a year. Now, I want to explore that controversy with you, but I think it's worth restating here, because what I'm hearing from you is that when you were first just strategizing this effort, it wasn't meant to be a big headline-grabbing affair. You were just writing a letter. Exactly. 
first of all, we thought we might be dealing with reasonable people. That educated us right away. Uh, so, no, it was a minor thing to us, very minor, as I said, because we parked on Capitol Hill. What we were trying to do was what I would consider the much bigger issues, like pay equity, like better Social Security, child care, violence against women. All of those things were front and center on our agenda. And something like this was indeed very minor, and we just thought, you know, we might could push things along. We had no idea it was going to blow up like it did. Why then do you think did Hootie Johnson, the chair at Augusta National, publish that letter and essentially vilify you personally, making what he considered an attack a centerpiece of his defense of the practices at Augusta National? Well, I think he thought he would just crush the little lady. <laughs> but what he did not realize is I was five minutes from every national network, and I at that time was known to the press because I appeared on national television probably a couple of times a month on different shows about different issues affecting women. So they knew where to find me. And he was stuck down there in Georgia and he he didn't realize, I guess, what he was taking on. Of course, it's probably fair to say that Martha Burke and her side weren't aware, at first, just how big a fight they had waded into as well. And in 2002, it quickly became clear that, for both sides in the argument, this controversy was about so much more than allowing women to join the Augusta National Golf Club. I'll point out here that throughout its 87-year history, the membership practices at Augusta National have been intentionally steeped in mystery. No one really knows how many members there are, though it's said to be around 300-ish. Membership is by invite only, and it's limited to the most powerful executives at the largest companies and the most prominent politicians in the U.S. Accordingly, an invitation to membership is, by its very nature, a potent tool for advancement and influence. And as Dr. Burke noted in an interview with CNN in 2002, if women weren't allowed as members, that made Augusta National symbolic of the very highest, very most pernicious glass ceiling. It's discrimination. It's not golf. It's not one woman on one golf course. It's why is it all right in the 21st century to discriminate against women, to defend it, and for the CEOs of America's largest corporations to belong to a club that excludes half their customers. Conversely, Hootie Johnson, Augusta National, and much of the golf establishment didn't stake their argument in a defense of discrimination against women. Rather, they hunkered down behind what I like to call the you're not the boss of me defense. Indeed, the full context of that quote about bayonets lays the groundwork for this. In his open letter to Martha Burke, Hootie Johnson had written, quote, There may well come a day when women will be invited to join our membership, but that timetable will be ours and not at the point of a bayonet. It's just a natural thing. It's just been going on for centuries and centuries that men like to get together with men every now and then, and women like to get together with women every now and then, and that's just a simple fact of life in America. I do want to make one point. Uh, It's not my issue alone, and I promise you what I'm saying is if I drop dead this second, 
our position will not change. The way they handled it in the press was pretty contentious. With Coca-Cola locked in as an event sponsor of the Masters Tournament at Augusta, Ben Deutsch says he watched the situation with dread as it unraveled nightly on the evening news. So it was a very aggressive stance by Augusta National. Hootie Johnson had a reputation as a bit of a scrapper. Right. Essentially. <laughs> and and so it was obviously, you know, we found ourselves squarely in the middle of this. Obviously, it put a lot of pressure on us. Originally, I, I went back and looked at, at some of the statements that we gave, and, and I think our first statement, again, keep in mind, this is in the early 2000s, so I think it was 2002, you said. Our first statement was, it would be inappropriate for us to comment on the membership of Augusta National, a private club. Mm. Well, think about how that would play out today. How do you feel looking back on that right now? Oh my God, I can't even, in fact, I forgot that that's how it's been so long. I just assumed that we had something that was a little more critical of the situation. And when I read that, I thought, wow, that really surprised me. Is that what, is it what we ended up saying? And of course, it's attributed to me. So um, again, a lot of these things, I've, as I've told you, I've tried to block them out of my memories. I've been pretty good at that. So that was how we, we first handled it. And then but we knew that, that this was not a sustainable situation for us. You know, I, I remember going to our business, our sports marketing folks, and just saying, you know, guys, Augusta National needs to do something about this. Ben Deutsch knew that Coke needed to be on the right side of this issue. But getting there was going to be an act of delicate needle threading. Because from a PR perspective, they were in a bad spot. To be seen as supporting discrimination against women was bad for the company. But also, to alienate Augusta National, the pro-golf establishment, and all of their supporters was also bad for the company. And especially 20 years ago, it's important to remember that companies were not expected to take a side in issues that could be written off as political. I hope you see my air quotes there. Those standards have changed somewhat today, and the world is better for it. But in 2002, Dr. Martha Burke knew that having a just cause wasn't enough to win. She knew she needed to raise the stakes for companies like Coca-Cola until withdrawing their support from the masters was clearly the best business decision they had available. Public pressure, even after a few days, was starting to build. And the companies involved, and there were many, it was a membership of 300 people, mainly CEOs of large companies. So they were struggling with what to do. They didn't want to drop their membership. They didn't want to make Hootie mad. Mm -hmm. But they were getting pretty bad press at that point. And as I said, this was a new story. It was kind of juicy. So I was all over it. A lot of the members weren't known for a long time several months into this controversy, Coca-Cola obviously being a sponsor, they were known. But then I got an anonymous fax that just said members at the top, and it had all their names. And I didn't know most of these names because I didn't swim in those circles. You know, I didn't know who were the corporate leaders of the world, really. So I called the golf money writer for USA Today, a guy named Mike McCarthy, and I said, I got a list. Would you like to have it? 
well, yeah. So he, USA Today, of course, had the resources to research it. It came out uh, with a teaser on A1, front page of the sports section. Who are these guys? Well, here they are. And they were all outed. Who do you think sent you that list? Did you ever find out? I found out years later. And I don't remember the individual's name. He was not a well-known person. But he sent the list, and it was his ex-wife's father was a member. (laughs) And I... (laughs) I figured that, you know, in the divorce, he somehow spirited away the list. I don't know. Maybe it was a bitter divorce. (laughs) Did it feel to you in the moment like you were on the cusp of history? Hell yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's a short answer. Uh, Yeah. And believe me, I got a lot of death And when I went down there to protest, I was in a bulletproof vest, and I had hired bodyguards. That's how passionate some of the anti-women people were. So, yeah, I think it was groundbreaking in terms of not only taking on the corporate sponsors, but 300 corporations that the CEOs were members. So as Martha Burke and the National Council of Women's Organizations gained ground in the court of public opinion, Ben Deutsch and the team at Coca-Cola leveraged their influence behind the scenes, trying to eke out a public relations win for the company that still put them on the right side of history. And so, you know, the first move is have Augusta National basically fix the problem. And so that's what our first discussions with Augusta was, you know, guys, you know, we really need you to help resolve this. We need you to take a position, to take an action, to engage in discussion, blah, blah, whatever it may be. No, this is, this is interesting to me because this is a process that plays out very often behind the scenes away from the public limelight. But here we have a company like Coca-Cola looking at a situation and saying, this is a thing that we don't support personally, that we don't support as an organization, but rather than come right out and condemn it vocally, you were using your influence to try to affect change behind the scenes. And that's not something that the public is always aware of when it's happening, but you saw that there was an issue and you wanted to be on the right side of it. Right. And, you know, like I said, that seemed to be the first really move for us. And, you know, if the situation doesn't get remedied that way, then we would be in a position where we would need to make a decision and make a choice. So we went to Augusta and said, you know, guys, we need you to manage this uh, because we are in a position where we're getting criticized and there are a number of threats of boycott. And I'll never forget the response back to us was, you know, don't worry, we'll, we'll handle it. But yet this still was going on for, I think it was sort of a two or three month period. And it was getting to a point where we were getting very concerned. And I know we went out and had another discussion with Augusta and the sponsors reached out to them. And Augusta told the sponsors that, don't worry, we've got it covered. The next morning, we were notified maybe an hour before the press release went out by Augusta National that they were putting out an announcement. And that announcement essentially was to go sponsor free, that the 2003 uh, Masters was going to be sponsor free. And 
uh, I think Hootie Johnson's quote in there was something to the effect that it, you know, we felt it was unfair to put the Masters media sponsors in a position of dealing with this pressure. It's not their fight. It's ours. And that's how it got resolved, or that's how it got resolved from Coke's perspective and the other two sponsors. <laughs> I imagine that you felt quite a bit of relief when that happened, because what other moves did you have at your disposal? I would describe it as disbelief, because <laughs> nowhere in any scenario would any sponsor ever have expected that to be the outcome. But our only lever was to decide in some form or fashion to suspend our sponsorship of the Masters. That would have been the only lever we had left. It was very clear that that was it. And we certainly didn't want to do that, but I'm quite certain had we been put in a position where we felt like that was the only way for us to resolve this, we would have, we would have done that. I think about how a scenario like that one would play out today. And I think there would be an incredibly quick decision made by the Coca-Cola company or any brand today, how it would have been handled. And that would have been to walk away from the sponsorship. Possibly in a matter of hours. Correct. Correct. You know, again, in that day, that was 2002. There was no social media at the time. And clearly, it was a different day as well. But clearly, when I think about how we'd handle something like that today, the right way to handle it would be to communicate to the organization, clearly understand whether or not they were going to do something to resolve it. If it was clear that that was going to take a long period of time or that there wasn't a lot of interest, then it would be incumbent upon any sponsor to take the action of removing itself from that situation. Dr. Martha Burke was also caught off guard by the announcement that the Masters would not be accepting sponsorships for the 2003 tournament, a decision she describes from her perspective as letting the sponsors off the hook. They could just sort of go quietly into that good night, so to speak, and blame it on Hootie. That's fine. We just won't be a sponsor this year and hope it all would blow over, which it didn't until after the tournament. And then it sort of slowly dropped out of the news. The controversy didn't end there for Dr. Martha Burke. She organized a high-profile protest of the now-sponsorless 2003 Masters Tournament. If you remember the news coverage of the event, it kind of took on a life of its own. It was an Elvis impersonator, a giant inflatable pig, even a Ku Klux Klan presence. But without any real resolution, the story eventually lost steam as the U.S. went off to war in Iraq and the news coverage moved on to other things. Dr. Martha Burke returned to her D.C. advocacy on behalf of larger issues and women's rights, and Augusta National carried on with its own business as usual until this day in 2012. Today, the biggest glass ceiling in sports was smashed. For their part, both former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and South Carolina business executive Darla Moore were quite gracious today as they broke into the boys' club, accepting their membership at Augusta National. ABC News with the coverage there. 
On his own terms, Hootie Johnson had stepped down from his membership chair at Augusta in 2006. Then in 2011, IBM had announced the appointment of its first female CEO, Ginny Rometty. And with previous IBM executives having received membership invites to Augusta, and IBM's continued sponsorship of the Masters, speculation was rampant that Augusta would finally need to revisit the issue. And I've got to ask, when when that day came, A, I imagine that your phone rang off the hook, but was that a gratifying moment for you? It was, let's say, semi-gratifying. They waited long enough that they thought I would be out of the picture. (laughs) But, of course, I got a lot of calls. And I said then, and I will say now, because they let in two women, one a woman of color, to their credit. Condoleezza Rice. Yes, and the other one was Darla Moore, who was a good friend of Hootie's. Hootie Johnson passed away in 2017. The first line in his obituary made mention of the Augusta National Membership Controversy. At the age of 79, Dr. Martha Burke says it's as much a part of her legacy. But she notes that there's still work to be done on the subject of equal treatment for women. So I've always said, you know, this thing's going to be on my gravestone. It doesn't go away, but that's okay. Because it was an important thing. It was symbolic of how women are still and were then discriminated both at work and at home. And there are a lot of things we need that we still don't have. The way it's changed is they're trying to put lipstick on a pig. Most of them don't pay women equally to men for doing the same jobs. How do I know that? Because even public corporations do not release that kind of information. It would embarrass them. If you look at the number of female CEOs in the Fortune 500, it's under 10%, I'm pretty sure. Last time I looked, it was 7%. Pay gap nationally, big corporations included, stands at about 20%. So some progress has been made in the sense of the Me Too movement and so forth. They now know what is a no-no, but they haven't done a heck of a lot about it. Uh, There are very few truly equal treating corporations. I'll tell you. I really enjoyed learning about this story because I was too young when it happened to pay much attention to it. There are a lot of fascinating PR lessons that you can extract, but after going back and ingesting a lot of the news coverage from the day, I'm struck by one thing in particular. There is very little room for nuance in moments of controversy and crisis. I don't know if that's good or bad, I think it just is. Hootie Johnson and his supporters, they portrayed Dr. Martha Burke as a man-hater, as an opportunist butting in where it wasn't her place, and, well, first of all, bad take. Second of all, they're also just wrong. She had every right to raise a concern about Augusta's membership practices because they were, in essence, a glass ceiling separating women from power. Hootie Johnson and his supporters didn't want to have that conversation, though, so they resorted to the you're-not-the-boss-of-me defense, which, in my experience, is a surefire indicator that someone's in the wrong, and they were. But to define Hootie Johnson's legacy as one of ignorance and oppression, well, that's not entirely right either. 
Anyone who plays the redneck card on Hootie Johnson ignores the fact that he was an active campaigner for civil rights in his home state of South Carolina. Earlier in life, he fought for school desegregation, went out of his way to promote hiring diversity at his family's firms, and was the first white Southerner to serve on the board of directors of the Urban League. Was he wrong about women members at Augusta? Yeah. Does he deserve for that to be his legacy? Well, that I don't know. Does he have anyone else to blame but himself for that? Probably not. And then there's the lack of nuance inherent in the age-old conflict between activist culture and corporate culture. And here, I think, is the lesson that gets missed most often. I think it's very easy from an activist perspective to see organizations like Coca-Cola as obstructing progress in a story like this one from 2002. And Dr. Burke made clear that she didn't think they did enough to publicly condemn Augusta and didn't respond as fast as she'd have liked. I also know from my own experience in public relations and media that it's easy to view activists and protests as a hassle. And to Ben Deutsch's credit, I don't think that he takes that view, but I have certainly been in a position where I thought on the job, well, their cause is just, but these activists sure are a pain in the butt. Very often they mean a lot more work and higher pressure on the job for PR practitioners after all. And the fact of the matter in this story is both Ben Deutsch and Dr. Martha Burke were working to effect positive change in their own ways. Without the activism and pressure created by Dr. Burke's campaign, Ben Deutsch and Coke wouldn't have had the business case to express concerns as an event sponsor. But as Martha Burke saw it, without the discomfort of event sponsors and especially members of Augusta National, it is unlikely that Augusta would ever have felt the need to revisit their policy. So it might not always feel like it, but from the perspective of making the world a better place and affecting positive change, activists and public relations practitioners need each other. They're symbiotic. It might be hard to see in the moment, but that's the nuance of the situation. Anyway, the Masters Tournament sponsorship fiasco was just one of a half dozen PR battles in which Ben Deutsch fought in the early 2000s. So coming up after the break... I was called a lot of things on those calls, none of which I can repeat on this podcast. Somebody clearly leaked this to the Wall Street Journal. More tales from the media relations desk of one of the world's most prominent brands. Plus, how Ben eventually rose to become Coca-Cola's vice president of communications. That's all coming up in a minute here on Lead Balloon. This is Lead Balloon, and I'm Dusty Weiss. It was the early 2000s, and Coca-Cola needed a win. If you caught our last episode with Ben Deutsch, you already know that he was feeling the pressure as Coke's then media relations manager. Following a health scare in Belgium, a whistleblower scandal, and SEC investigation, and then the whole thing with the Masters Tournament sponsorship, the communications team that Ben would eventually come to lead was ready to go all in to turn things around. Coke had established itself as one of the great and most creative and memorable advertisers, right, in, in the 70s and, and 80s. But at the time, we were riding a little bit of a cold streak, right? And I had mentioned to you where the business was and all of the tumult we had, the lackluster results. And so this new campaign that we were launching really was critical. And there was a lot of pressure 
to have a memorable campaign. So we had developed this really extensive, comprehensive, fully integrated campaign that involved some big names at the time. In that day, it was, I want to say, Penelope Cruz, Lance Armstrong, Common, Maya. It was a pretty big deal. And I and my team were responsible for rolling it out from a communication standpoint. You know, we kept it under wraps from a media perspective. And so reporters were trying to always break the news around the new campaign that we were either working on, uh, what agency we hired to help develop it, whatever the news item is. But covering campaigns from a business perspective in those days was one of the main kind of focuses of a beat reporter. There were 10 to 12 media outlets who woke up every single day competing against one another on what they could write about Coke. So it was incredibly competitive during that time. And so we realized that the only way that we could keep peace with all of our key media was to give news on an equal basis to the key media. And so what we agreed to do for this particular announcement is we invited uh, all of the key media to come into Atlanta for a day. And we set up a, a room where we would have all of our key marketing execs roll the campaign out to these reporters. And so everybody would get it at the same time. You're not playing favorites. Everybody's on the same level. Exactly. And again, getting to that point was incredibly hard and, and always was hard just because there's always a tendency for some leaking to go on. And it was more common than not that somebody would break the news on what it, whatever it was that we were doing. But in this case, we had done a really good job of keeping it under wraps. And so let's say the press conference is on a Tuesday morning. We've got all this New York media coming into Atlanta. We've got people coming in from the West Coast, people coming in from Chicago. And we get to about five or six o'clock Monday evening. So the evening before the press event, which was going to be at 9 a.m. on Tuesday. And my team, we're going through all of our final details and making sure that we're ready for how we're going to do our engagement and work with our executives and set the interviews up. And all of a sudden, I get a call at 6 p.m. from the Wall Street Journal. And I know this isn't a good call. I know this <laughs> is not a good call. And the reporter says to me, Ben, we know you guys are coming out with your new ad campaign tomorrow. Let me walk you through what we know. And she continued to walk through detail after detail after detail after detail of this entire campaign. So it wasn't just we figured out the campaign slogan. It was we know every single detail on every single spot and how you're going to roll this thing out. And I'm sitting there listening to this and, you know, my stomach has dropped and I'm just beside myself. And finally, the reporter gets done and said, do you have a comment? I was so flabbergasted. I didn't know what to say. And she said, she goes, don't worry. We don't need a comment from you. We feel really good about our source. <laughs> and so I said, all right. Well, thank Betsy. Um, My comment is, please don't run that story. Exactly. I said, is there any way, is there anything that I can do to, uh, to get you to hold this until tomorrow? And she laughed 
And she said, no. And she said, I hope you have a good day tomorrow. <laughs> and maybe 20 minutes later, the Wall Street Journal ran it over there. You know, basically it was the Dow Jones wire service. It runs over the wire and then it would show up in the next morning's paper, but it ran on the wire. And all of a sudden, of course, my phone rang off the hook. Every single reporter who I had invited in, who had agreed to come and knew that we were doing this to share it with everyone at the same time, to say they were unhappy is is the understatement of a lifetime. And um, I was called a lot of things on on those calls, none of which I can repeat uh, on this podcast. And there was nothing I could say other than I, 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 you know, what I explained to them is I said, guys, this was not done by my team, by me. Somebody clearly leaked this to the Wall Street Journal. Well, again, as I said earlier, the facts really don't matter here. You know, every one of these other reporters were now getting beat up by their editors saying, wait a minute, I'm sending you to Atlanta tomorrow. And the Wall Street Journal has the entire campaign and they've gone out. Why should you even go to Atlanta tomorrow? I mean, that was how, that was the environment that we were working in. And so I didn't sleep that night. Next morning, I wasn't sure if anybody was going to show up at our press conference. And I get to the room and, you know, I was assuming I'd be greeting reporters. And sure enough, they all showed up, exception maybe one, maybe one didn't come. But they all came in and boy, did I get the ice treatment. And um, <laughs> they were professional and they ended up, for the most part, really being respectful of our executives when they walked through the whole program and the thinking behind the program. And then they all wrote really fair and accurate recaps of the campaign. But obviously, that was a huge, huge stain on us and one that was really hard to work around. And, and ultimately, when it was all said and done, as I found out that one of our executives gave the green light to one of the agencies who was working on the campaign to share that with the Wall Street Journal because that executive wanted the Wall Street Journal to have the exclusive against the PR team's recommendation. Carefully of, constructed and thought out strategy. <laughs> correct. Yeah. And it was one of the worst moments of my career because I had, you know, all of these really important journalists coming in and, you know, they couldn't help but think, wow, well, somebody from communications must have done this. And Well, and because ultimately one of the most important things that you have to cultivate as a PR practitioner is trust the trust that you put in the reporters that you do sometimes give exclusives to that they're going to do their jobs thoughtfully and professionally, but also the trust that they put in you that the information that you're giving them is truthful, but also that you are treating with them fairly. And when your word is on the line, when your name is at the top of that press release and somebody further up the food chain goes by and burns you, it's not that nameless executive that the reporters get mad at. It's you, the person that they have come to trust. It's, it's your trust who's broken. And that's, that's a bad feeling. No, without a doubt. And, you know, the, the only thing that, that saved me at that time was, you know, we've talked about this was, this was 2003. So, 
you know, this was three years of really intense engagement with media, with Coke being on the defensive. So we had all these situations, these negative situations happening and the business wasn't doing well. And so, you know, I built relationships with reporters during the worst, really one of the worst business periods of, of Coke's history. But what I was able to do is earn their trust by being a straight shooter and being incredibly helpful, even though at the time there was very little good news that Coke could talk about. And so I think back at if this would have been a situation where I hadn't had those relationships built uh, during those times, that moment, I wouldn't have gotten the benefit of the doubt. They were upset with me because they needed to vent to somebody. And I accepted that. But ultimately, they knew that they could trust me and they knew that I wouldn't have agreed to that. And they know that I wouldn't have allowed that given everything that was in my power. You know, Ben, the kinds of PR war stories that we've discussed here, they're the kind of experiences in this field that either make you or break you as a professional. And and certainly it's safe to say that you came out stronger and better for each one of these moments from your career. But how did these experiences prepare you for your ultimate role as Coke's vice president of corporate communications? Well, I learned media relations in a very unique way, and I would have never had the opportunity to learn it in a way had I not been put in a situation of which I did not want to be in and found myself in a situation where for four to five years we were on our heels and I think that prepared me in a way that seven to ten years of maybe smooth sailing or even a couple of bumps along the way would have never prepared me. I, I, I learned in the heat of the moment and in an intense way. And I think it put me in a position, we talked a little bit about this idea of dealing with pressure. It forced me to work in a really intense situation. And I, I think I, I'm grateful for that. And I, I think it just allowed me to bring a perspective to my job and especially the importance of media relations which is obviously one of the most important disciplines within the communications function, I think that really prepared me to take on you know, the responsibilities that I did in a way that I would not have been able to probably do had that experience not happened. You allude to the fact that you were dragged into the realm of corporate communication somewhat against your will. You clearly stuck with it for a while. Did it grow on you? Did you come to love it? No. You know, the funny thing is, is and I, I, I tell this story all the time, I loved it. And I, in looking back, I don't know how I would have done anything different. I learned that, quite frankly, the, the learning how to do communications about the business of the organization is the most fulfilling, the most impactful communications that you can do. You know, I had this belief that I was moving this needle when I was promoting Coke's efforts surrounding the sponsorship of the Super Bowl. Well, yes, those things are are important, but there's nothing more important than attempting to manage a very critical issue or the communications of your business or managing an earnings announcement the things that are really core to the business of the organization and the things that 
quite frankly, are important to the majority of the company's external stakeholders. Your elevation to the role of vice president, uh, was that presented to you in a similar fashion where you were told, here's your new job, time to take it? Or uh, was that something that you actually pursued and caught? No, you know, I never thought about what my next job would be. And I'm not saying that that's the way to go. In fact, I, I think it's good to have a little bit of uh, sightline into the things that you want to do in the future. But I never did. I came in and my strategy was do the best job you can and hopefully good things will happen. I mean, it was that basic and that naive in many respects, but it served me well. I, it, it worked at a time at Coke and for me, it, it worked well. So I never really thought about that next job. And so, you know, when I joined the company, I never thought that I would ascend to become the vice president of corporate communications. And as I told you, I probably would have been happy doing my sports PR job the rest of my career. But again, thanks to some really smart mentors who knew that for me, from a career perspective, the best thing for me to do would be to move into corporate media relations and learn that side of the business. Thankfully, that happened because it wouldn't have happened on my own. When I share sort of my recommendations and, and advice to, to younger folks, it's still, it's kill it at what you're doing and good things will happen. That advice doesn't change. But I also think it's healthy and good and wise to be thinking about where you want to go, what you want to do, and talk to people to learn about those things and network to learn about those opportunities and those jobs so that you can have a little bit of a sightline because I do think that's healthy. I'm, I'm glad that you brought up mentorship too because I've been fortunate to have many, many mentors over the course of my career and each one has shaped me and put me on a better trajectory and ultimately helped me find the job that I have now and can't thank them enough for that. But the, the mentors that you had along the way, the crisis situations, the little mistakes, the faux pas, everything that we've discussed here, how did they change the way that you would ultimately come to work as a manager for direct reports and eventually the entire communications team at Coke? Well, you know, you learn a lot. I found you learn a lot from examples of not great leadership. And then you also learn from examples of good leadership. And I think one of the things that I learned that I tried to share when I became a manager was those lessons that I learned, that, especially that lesson that I learned when I made that huge mistake or what I thought was a huge mistake and uh, thought I was bringing down the Coca-Cola company and learned that I quite frankly didn't. But that idea of allowing and giving some cover to your team I think was something that I learned that was so important because Coke was a pressure cooker, still is a pressure cooker. It was a, especially for in communications, it's, and a lot of that depends on obviously who you're working for. And some CEOs are different than others, but during my, my 11 years running the, the department, you know, it was intense. It was a zero sum game. And so that made it hard. And, you know, when I reflect back during that time, I was probably more conservative than I would like to be and that I normally am. But what I tried to do is allow the people who were working for me to have more of that freedom to try different things and to really take those intelligent risks. 
you know, was I successful as I'd, I'd like? Probably not because it was a very intense time. And like I said, you were evaluated based on your last story and, or your last project. So it's very competitive. That's very healthy. And as a manager and a leader, what you have to do is figure out ways to allow the people that work for you to have that freedom to take those intelligent risks. Yeah, certainly. Well, let's examine that period a, a little bit more then. You assumed the reins of VP of Communications right around the same time that the Great Recession of 2008 was uh, setting in, speaking of being something of a, a black cloud, <laughs> as such things go. But in the wake of all that uncertainty, the company saw somewhat of a turnaround there and really following the recession, saw some golden years again. How did you help shape the company's approach to communications and how did the company's approach to communications change during your tenure to help move the brand forward into the 21st century? That's a great question. You know, a couple of things. One is that one of the great things of working at Coke was how valued communications always has been and will always continue to be. And, you know, that's not the way it is at all organizations. There was never any moment where I had to justify what we were doing. I had, clearly I had to justify budgets and I had to demonstrate why certain things had value and why we were going to spend money against them. But the idea, you know, the work uh, was never questioned. And in, quite frankly, it was, it was valued and embraced. So that was one of the great benefits of working at a company like Coca-Cola, which again is one of the world's best known brands. And, and it allowed you really to sort of take some big swings at things. You know, the other thing that I would say is that the company, any company, their tone is set largely by the CEO. And I learned working for four CEOs, I learned that. And I learned from a communication standpoint, how that one person can influence an entire culture of an organization that extends across 200 countries across the world. And that was one of the most amazing things that I learned because I walked in thinking that, you know, I think most people would think that, oh, one person really can't have influence on an organization that has 130,000 employees spread across all of these continents, right? But boy, oh boy, I clearly, clearly saw how important one person could be and, and how that person, whether he or she embraced communications and how they leveraged communications to successfully lead an organization. That was one of the things that was such a, a great learning for me and really sets the tone from a communications perspective. The last thing I would say is I think that one of the things I'm probably most proud of at Coke and how we changed while I was in that role is we recognized uh, how important it was to have our own brand publishing platform. I think we were one of the first companies really to establish an incredibly sophisticated brand publishing platform. Uh, platform. We, we, we introduced, and it was in 2012, and we introduced uh, basically this uh, program that was called Coca-Cola Journey, which was essentially taking our website and flipping it on its head and turning it into a 
living, breathing digital news magazine that would basically serve as our content platform for communications and then would then be leveraged through all of our social channels. And that to me was one of the things that I, I, I think that I, I look back on, I was, I was most proud of is, is being a part of that and having the team that, that really, you know, I can take very little credit other than I was leading the team, but I had a team below me that was amazing in how they were such forward thinking in this space and how we created something that really changed the game from a communications perspective and gave us an ability to, to talk directly to stakeholders in an incredibly sophisticated and creative way. Again, I'm biased, but it, it was that idea then was really adopted by a lot of big brands. And, and we are typically held up as one of the early brands who embraced social and digital from a corporate communications perspective. You retired from Coke in 2017 after 25 years with the company, and that is an especially storied run in a competitive field at such a global level that shoes a whole lot of people up and spits them out. And where most people would kick their feet up and settle into a comfortable retirement, maybe go fishing, maybe go golfing, you right now are hitting the books and taking econ finals? Yeah, yeah, and, and questioning the the uh, intellect that, and, and definitely reminding myself how long it's been since I've taken econ, which takes me back to my junior year in high school. No, you know, it's, it's, I'm having a blast. In chapter two, I wanted to do some different things and I've always had designs on, on teaching and I've been fortunate enough to go and be asked to teach at the University of Wisconsin in the summer and just had such a great experience doing that, that I have decided that that's what I want to do. And so going to school to get a master's is really designed to just for that. Uh, I'm getting a, a master's in sports management from Temple University, but it's, it's not about sports management. It's about having the degree uh, so that I'd like to teach here in Atlanta where I live during the school year and then go up to Wisconsin in the summer and teach in the summer. Not the winter, huh? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I, I'll tell you though, it was, you know, I hadn't been in Madison during the summer since I was a college student back in the 80s. And so when I went up and taught a couple of years ago, I couldn't believe how wonderful it was to be, you know, in Madison during the summer. It is. There's nothing else quite like it. Oh, my God. Pictures of beer down at Memorial Union Terrace looking out over Lake Mendota at the sailboats. That is, that is my happy place right there. Well, and that's where I had my office hours was sitting at one of those tables and, and looking out on Lake Mendota. And it just, it is, it's a, it's, it's a magical place. But, but, but anyway, so I, what I'd like to do more of is, is to teach here during the school year uh, in Atlanta and then go up there in the summer. So having a master's will make it easier for the universities here to hire me. You know, they have some requirements. And so I felt, well, then let's do it. And, you know, I'm having a blast going to school. And as I've told people, it's really amazing how much fun it is to go to school when you're interested in learning, um, which, you know, much as I'd love to 
say that I was when I was getting my undergraduate. I don't think that was the primary goal. (laughs) Well, I think it's awesome. I think that the approach to retirement of considering it just the next chapter and not the end of the book is, is something that I'll be striving for someday as well. Ben Deutsch, the former VP of communications for Coca-Cola. The next time that you're teaching a class on communications, please let me know how I can audit that class (laughs) because you have been generous enough to share hours of your time with me. And I feel like I've only just started to scratch the surface of all the things that you have to teach young communicators. But thank you for being so generous with your time and thanks for joining us on Lead Balloon. Thanks, Dusty. It's been a pleasure and um, good luck with what you're doing. I'm so impressed with Lead Balloon and it's a great service to PR and marketing professionals. So congratulations. Just to reiterate, I am so grateful to Ben Deutsch for all the time and insights he shared with us for this and the last episode. Check out episode 18 if you missed it the first time around. There's really a ton to learn from a person who has been there and done that like Ben has. Once again, a big thank you as well to Jonathan Stern from JMS Platinum Marketing Communications in Florida for making the introduction to Ben. And thanks to Dr. Martha Burke for letting us see the Masters Tournament controversy through her eyes. I talked earlier about nuance, and it's my experience that you only get nuance by talking to as many people as possible for their side of the story. She was a lot of fun to talk to, and we are absolutely grateful for her perspective here. That is going to do it for this episode of Lead Balloon. Please make sure you're subscribed in your favorite app. Maybe tell a friend if you like the show. Lead Balloon is produced by PodCamp Media, where we provide branded podcast production solutions for businesses. Check out our website, podcampmedia.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Until the next time, folks, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.